1: Okay, so this podcast is going to be extremely controversial. I decided to podcast with the PH, the professional hunter, Leon Kacklehofer, and I'm sorry, I messed up your surname, Leon. That was one of the professional hunters on the big Tusker that got taken out of NG13 in Botswana. There is certainly a lot of controversy around this elephant, mainly because it's an elephant. And two, because it's a big Tusker, in that it is an over 100-pound Tusker, something that is essentially iconic, and I agree, very iconic. But I wanted to have Leon on here to ask him some very direct questions about communities, about sustainable use of wildlife, about elephant hunting, about his history in this area, about the elephant hunt itself, which comes at the end of the podcast the nuances of the hunt. We don't even touch where the meat goes. I've got lots of pictures of where the meat went, 350 villages. But what you will find is a very broad explanation of general, sustainable, consumptive use of wildlife in a very, very rural area in Africa, specifically this country, Botswana. I want you to take this podcast with an open mind. I want your feedback. Send us an email, info at bloodorigins.com. You can text us at 620-860-4804. And really take the conversation for what it is, which is a really no-holds-barred truth explanation of what's happening on the ground in Botswana. And as Leon says at the end, if you don't believe him, go see it for yourself. All right. So we're just going to get right into the heart of the matter. I just introduced you. Um, So a little controversial. Would you let me ask this question? Do you think what do you think? I, I guess in the moment, shooting the big elephant, did you think, okay. I'm about to have a massive controversy on my
3: hands. (laughs) No, I I thought it might get a bit warm. But um, no, that was uh, uh, actually a little far from my... uh, We didn't realize how
2: big. um, But yeah, that wasn't wasn't one of the things I was thinking about.
1: For people who have no idea about like big tuskers, because, you know, there's this... I guess there's this charismatic thing generally about elephants.
3: Absolutely. Okay.
1: But when you get into these big boys, the iconic pictures that you see of these long tuskers with Kilimanjaro in the background, it elevates itself. What are your thoughts to it? Like let me ask this from us from a hunt perspective. Mm. What are your what are your general thoughts and feelings? About elephants, big tuskers, Africa. Maybe let's just start
3: there. Yes, Robbie, it's it's a big, uh, big question that I could go on with, go on for hours about. But yeah, I mean, if you you get back to to elephant, elephant are are a, are a very sensitive subject in general, um, and particularly, you know, the big tuskers, the so-called iconic iconic bulls and stuff like that you know and and from from a hunter's from a hunter standpoint or i'll say from my personal standpoint um it's it's something that's it's actually difficult to explain or articulate because to be in a position to hunt a bull like that is it's an incredible privilege it really is an incredible privilege um when you take a bull like that there's a lot of there's remorse, there's a lot of sadness. You think about the great life that this elephant has led. Um, you know there's more than it than shooting a bull and you know taking a photograph and becoming a hero and all this this other nonsense there's a lot there's a lot more to it um, than that. And if you think about particular particularly this project we've been working on with this community, um, you know, if I go back there they established their trust in 2003. And since 2003, mm-hmm. up until the present, this is the first commercial interest they've had in their area or even in their community, which is made of three, of three different villages.
2: So there's, there's 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 all of this. And I, I'd like to say it in the beginning. It's a bit emotional. Um, while we were standing there appreciating the, the bull, the one tracker. Um, sorry about this. No, the and one, I can
1: see you're getting emotional. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that people don't realize is that there is remorse, there is sadness, there is this thing tied to this animal that we chase.
2: Um, you know, the, the one tracker went up to the bull and he patted it on the rump And he said in Setswana, Tankira Which which means Thank you, sir for a life and a living he's given the elephant has given his life but it's given life to them
3: and an appreciation Mm. to them there's money there's work and there's meat you know amongst other amongst other benefits but they too as the track as the people that we hunt with they appreciate um, they appreciate and respect the animal and Mm -hmm. you know that that is something that is something very important what hunting does, and you know it, um, but for the people out there, it it gives it gives a value to that wildlife in in what what would be termed marginal areas. If if ng thirteen, for instance, had any commercial uh, non consumptive potential, it would have already been developed. The truth know. of the matter is, it's a marginal area. It's way out there. It's completely undeveloped. Um, there's not a road in that 450,000 hectares or 1 million acres. The only road through there is that is that buffalo cordon, and that goes from south to north to the Namibian border on the Caprivi. Um, you know, so so when, when we took this bull, you know, all of this, it's not about, it wasn't actually so much about the trophy. Of course, it's an incredible privilege and it's a magnificent animal, or was a magnificent animal. But, you know, I was thinking about it earlier today, you know, when I got into hunting, it was all about the adventure and the challenge and the danger and this and that. But that has changed. You know, now there's more responsibility on on the wildlife and the conservation mm-hmm. aspect of it for me personally. And I think a lot of operators or hunters that, you know, um, you mature and you, you, you get older. It's not, it's not about so much about the hunt. It's now about the added responsibility that you have to to protecting that area. Um, and part and parcel of that is is the community is is making sure that the community are involved and the community mm-hmm. benefit. you know and mm-hmm. this is just coming to mind um, you know as as we talk, there's been a lot of controversy about the reopening of of hunting in Botswana. Um, yeah, yeah, you know it it's scientifically sound. it has hunting is proven to be a um, a sustainable conservation tool. Um, the current president besides the science about it around surrounding it you know he consulted the citizens of botswana in kotla meetings and at a kotla meeting it doesn't matter your skin color or anything like that you can stand up and say your say and you know the majority of botswana said the moratorium should be lifted you know they all had their various you know everybody had their own reasoning um, so you know there's a lot of controversy um, and finger pointing at Botswana why they did it and stuff like that. So it's twofold. Mm-hmm. From mm-hmm. from, it's democratic on the one side and scientific on the other side.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, and um, there are you know the, the biggest challenges that, that people out there don't understand is the the de- the government has got to deal with their public. You know, they, they've got sure, like to deal yeah, exactly, right? with their citizens. And the big thing, the big thing that they, they are having is obviously employment, poverty. Those are the big things. But a major political thing now is, is animal conflict, especially in the north of Botswana. I mean, there are elephants where there were never elephants. There are places where people don't even grow crops anymore because mm-hmm. they say they're just feeding the elephant. And the one, the, the one village we work with is a case in point. We've all had this magnificent rain this year, and they haven't even bothered. They said, Leon, but we're feeding the elephant. You know, mm. so, so Yeah, go no, for that,
1: that No, that's great. So let me do this. Let's let's backtrack a little bit because okay. I want to set context and I want to okay. set foundations for people. Yeah. And there's lots of like nuance here. We've set the scene. What happened? Yeah. Big elephant got yeah. killed. Big tusker got killed in a very marginal area in Botswana. Uh, there's a little bit of controversy around it because of of it being an elephant, number one, and number two, naturally, because it's a massive tusker, that there's now this hoopla mm-hmm. around, you know, people questioning a lot of different things tied to that specific hunt, but also generally talking about questions around the entire process quota system in Botswana. So let's Let's rewind a little bit because okay. we're already 10 minutes into this podcast okay. and I've never I haven't even introduced you yet. <laughs> Sorry. Um <laughs> so Leon uh, yeah. uh and I might have messed that up. Um
3: I've been called words. Please
1: introduce yourself. Please introduce yourself and say your name properly.
3: Hi, I uh, uh, Robbie my name is Leon Kaklofa. I'm a Botswana, A Botswana citizen and a professional hunter. Um Yeah. Um I've been licensed in Tanzania. I've hunted in Tanzania and also in Zambia. And um, I've, I've done this since I left school. My parents gave me the option of sending me to university or, as I wanted to do, go and do my apprenticeship in Tanzania. And uh, and I went and did my apprenticeship in, in Tanzania, and I started that in, in 1998. And uh, this is what I've been doing, you know, since then. Um, I was involved, uh, I think, in 1998. Panama Tenga was the first pilot project of the community-based natural resource management model was the first community actually um, piloted in Botswana. So, okay. you know, since then... Dude, when was that? That was in 1998. Okay,
1: and you were in Botswana already in 1998?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been here my whole life. Um, I'm in I'm Botswana, but when I started my apprenticeship, that was when the first pilot project was rolled out in the community that we were actually hunting in. You know, and that we have this partnered. exact
1: community where this no, big no, Tusker no, dropped? No,
3: not this one. No. One in the Chobe area. It's called uh, CH8. And the, the name okay. of the trust at the time was called Kalepa. I understand it's been changed. But yeah, so that was the first time that something like this had been piloted in Botswana com- um, community based natural resource management. Um, Leon,
1: are you Botswanan? Were yes. you born and raised in yeah, Botswana? Yes,
3: born and raised. Where in Botswana? Francistown.
1: Did you, I, I don't know if you know much about me and, and what I do, but the reason I became a wetland ecologist, yeah, the reason I went to university to be a wetland ecologist, the reason I have a PhD in wetland ecology was that my grandfather took me to the Okavango swamps when I was 16 years old.
3: <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And after leaving
1: the Okavango at 16, I said, I just want to study swamps for the yeah. rest of my life.
3: It's amazing. 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 Yeah, I mean I, I grew up in a from a rural background, you know, on a farm and stuff. And um I mean my 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 best friends at the time were, were kids from the farm, you know, um the staff's kids and stuff like that. And um we've always hunted and always fished and got up to mischief. Um this might be a bit more than I
2: bargained
1: for. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. Okay, so setting the scene again. You've been a professional hunter in Botswana, licensed since 1998.
3: Yeah, correct. I, uh, I, I, yeah, you could call it licensed. I got my full license in 2000 and 2002 or 2001. I became fully qualified okay. to you know, conduct dangerous game, game, dangerous game hunts.
1: Okay. So 20 years of experience yeah. leading up to this hunt. When did you start interacting with this community in ng13
3: yeah okay so, i have another question yeah. pop
1: into my brain specifically around ng13 but we'll, we'll okay
3: tackle that. we can start with that well um it actually happened around 2000, 2018 um i have a, a a long time tracker um that actually comes from that community and he said, you know, we need to, I need to start talking to the trust because there is talk, you know, the the government is doing consultations on lifting the moratorium on on hunting. So, you know, I would say this is probably the first time we made contact, um, introduced myself, they introduced themselves, they told me what they want to do and what they need to get there, et cetera, et cetera. So we just started having this conversation before the, the, the ban was even lifted. Um
1: Okay. So, NG13 as a block, can you explain to those that may not be familiar with the system in Botswana how, what NG13 is and how did NG13 come to be? Is it something that's been in place since 2000? Did it come together in like 2019? Like when did they create these blocks that decided um, that are essentially elephant management regions or elephant management blocks?
3: Okay, Robbie, I, I'm not sure on the, on, on the actual date, but these blocks have been around... That's okay. The, the, these blocks have been around, um, you know, I would say 30 or 40 years. They've changed slightly over the years, and then they came out with a, a different system of naming the blocks um, okay. according to the region. So if you look at NG13, NG stands for Ngamiland. CH would stand for the Chobe. CT would stand okay. for central and so on and so forth. Um, so so these, these blocks have been around a long time. And um, like I said earlier, I mentioned earlier, th- this trust was actually set up in 2003.
1: Okay, so let's, let's you've, you've mentioned the trust a couple of times. So let's yeah. talk about these trusts because I'm not too familiar with what that actually means. Like, why would a community I'm assuming it's a trust for NG13 or a trust for, for the community. Okay, so what does that mean? What does the trust okay, okay, actually so, mean?
3: So so the trust, I think, in a nutshell, is, is the executive that represents the community. And the community, in this case, in NG13, um, is made up of three different villages. That, How many
1: people, Leon, in the villages I in would, total
3: do you think? Um, I would guess, and I will get back to you on this, but I would say there's at least two thousand, fifteen hundred to two thousand across these three villages. Um, okay. On on the on the northern side, on the northern side of the Okavango um, Okavango River, which flows into Botswana, um, I think that they've just completed a census. But the last one, I think there were sixteen or seventeen thousand inhabitants from east to west. It's
1: so a very sparsely populated. Yes
3: it's yes, very sparsely populated.
1: 1,500 people, 2,000 people in 4,500, no, 450,000 hectares, yeah. a million acres. You've only got 2,000 people potentially. Yeah,
3: they're not even in the actual area, Robbie. This okay. is one of the few in areas in Botswana, community areas where the people aren't actually living. They're living on the border of the area, um, but they don't actually live in, in,
2: in, in the area.
1: Okay. So the trust is the executive steering committee. Is it a, a financial mechanism? Is it a is it a political mechanism? Is it a de- body a decision making body mechanism? All three?
3: Yeah, it's it's pretty much all three. Um, they they are elected by the community every few years according to individual constitutions. Um, then they they are in charge of dispersing the funds for community projects. Um, and those in those community projects are also, you know, they are voted on or decided upon by the individual villages. So, for instance, if one village wants to buy a tractor, for instance, you know, they're, they're, okay. all three get a tractor. They'll get the same amount of money or the money is actually split according to the size of the village. So the bigger the village, the bigger the, the chunk the chunk of uh, money that they are allocated. And then it's up to the, the, the community through the VDC, the Village Development Council, to decide what they, what they do with those funds.
1: Okay. Now, in terms of hunting in NG13, let's go back, let's start yeah. in 2003. Hunting has occurred in, in NG13. You might have not started there until 2018, but talk about the timeline Okay. From a Botswanan policy perspective, because we talk about the lifting of the ban, people may not have known about the history of banning, in, of hunting in Botswana. So maybe give us a little bit of a history, a walk back of, of that system.
3: Okay, um, Robbie, I, I won't go back as far as 2003, but what I there was hunting in, in 2003. You know, um, elephant, let me go back even further, just briefly. Elephant hunting was closed in Botswana for 25 years. And okay. it was reinstated in 1996, okay? So, all the hunting blocks back then were allocated, hunting quota started hunting in, in, in Botswana. Elephant hunting started, reopened in 1996.
1: Um, Which it, is why your elephant was the biggest elephant killed since 1996.
3: Uh, yes, apparently. I think one that's been weighed and measured, etc. Um, I'm sure... Okay. Through poaching or problem animal sure, controls, you know they, yeah. they they could have they could have been bigger. I know we we picked up a, a lot of really big elephants that have died of old age, etc. In, in the eastern side of the country, on the border of Wawangi, um, even in Moremi, you know there are tusks that have uh, that probably the same size or, or bigger that have died of natural causes. I would imagine. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, let's fast forward a bit. Then, 2003. Why I talk about 2003 is the, those three villages have never had any employment they haven't had a commercial interest so all those villages not i wouldn't say all but all the villi- i'll say all the villages where wildlife occurs in bots in northern botswana i would say the vast majority of them
2: are attached to a concession they they you got the okavango um uh
3: what's it called oct okavango community trust And that comprises of maybe six villages and two concessions. So that trust represents those communities in those concessions. And you have two types of concessions. You have government concessions, state concessions, and you have community concessions, um, which are, which are run and managed by the community in partnership with, with a private partner. And then, um, government concessions have got, there's no community involvement. Um, you use. You lease the land from the government. Now, what happens in a situation like Ng13 and community areas? They are giving a, given a land lease by the government, so okay. basically user rights to that land, um, and then they partner up with with a company to operate and develop, et cetera, et cetera, and to and to okay. run the business. So, two thousand and three, um, this particular trust was was set up, and um, they have not. Been able to utilise Ng thirteen at all. Um, they've tried with management plans or a couple of draft management plans, et cetera, et cetera, but nothing has come to fruition until um, until basically this you know this big elephant went down. Um, we uh, last year. So they've
1: received zero money.
3: Yeah, through they, hunting since 2000.: any, any
2: any tourism enterprise. Any tourism enterprise. Um, so, um, where was I going with this? So,
1: so the ban in Botswana, two thousand and three, you could have hunted an elephant, but nobody was hunting elephant in NG thirteen. Yeah,
3: NG then, thirteen, NG thirteen wasn't allocated a hunting quota. Has never been allocated a hunting quota until last year, which is twenty, what well, twenty twenty one. Has never been okay. allocated a hunting quota.
1: Just for everyone's edification, 2014, a new president got put in place in Botswana, right? Elephant banning was re, re-banned, correct?
2: Yeah. Um, it, the, the
3: incumbent president um, set in motion the, the moratorium on, on hunting in, in 2014. Sorry, not a ban, a moratorium, yeah, that's yeah. correct. Which, yeah. which was subsequently lifted by the current president, Um, in early 2019
1: okay so in 2019 is where you said you got involved in ng-13 through your tracker
2: yeah correct um when you went
4: yeah go ahead no no no
1: when you got involved what was the communication like with the village like what was that negotiation process like
3: Okay, so initially it was informal because the ban hadn't been officially lifted. Um but right. you know, they were desperately looking for a partner. I mean
2: they they had they had a trust um that had been elected, but you know, um all it, their statutory their
3: statutory um requirements were not in place. Um, so, you know, they came to us desperate and said, listen, this is the situation um, we, we are looking for a partner to, to partner with. If this hunting does take off, we're looking for a partner um, to to partner with us. Um, but in order to partner with us, we need, you know, there's a few things that we need um, before, you know, sh- we can get the show on the road. And And the biggest one was to get the trust up to date, get it properly and formally registered um um with a with a deed from the I think it's the High Court in Francistown. Um and, you know, all of this stuff requires money, the moving around, the daily allowances, accommodation, transport, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. you know, we we agreed we we agreed to do that. We hadn't signed an agreement or anything like that. Um we just agreed um to assist them, you know, in the interim while this is all, you know, up in the air and maybe about to happen we agreed to you know to go out and help them and um so you know from from that point onwards um we've we've worked with them and before we signed any agreements and things like that we i actually traveled up to the, traveled up to the community and um i engaged the community at the Kotla meetings which are the you know the traditional is the traditional um what will I call it? A traditional conference, if you want to call it that. Like an and, Indaba, right? Yeah, like, 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 come like, together. Like an Indaba, where everybody is free to say what they want to say, ask questions away, and um, you know. And I've been very open with them and very transparent from the beginning, and I told them, isn't is, you know, this is what it's going to require. This is a long-term investment, um, et, cetera, et cetera. I've been very transparent, and um, because I've shied away from. From that and my my biggest issue is is uh, corruption. you know i mm-hmm. I want to sleep at night and I want everything mm-hmm. done properly. we had a lawyer involved so that the processes and procedures are in place we didn't short cut anything. so after you have these community consultations and they make a decision or a resolution, there's there, there are minutes to these meetings and all these minutes are on record and attached to our agreements. And, you know, basically what we agreed to, we signed a, a memorandum of understanding with the
2: community where we would grant them, I think, in total, I think, 80,000, 50 or 60. I and mean, why I'm unsure about the thing is
3: because we paid a deposit on the management plan. Um, but subsequently, okay. you know, we've uh, we've sponsored a lot of their logistics, et cetera. So, I think we granted them the management plan. The value of the management plan was about between fifteen dollars and $60,000. Um, that's before transport or accommodation for the… For the. What do you mean the
1: value of the management plan? Did you have to write a management plan? No, no. Or did we, they have to write a management What no, is that?
3: No, we employed, um, we employed oh. a, a consultant and his team to write up a management plan for NG13. That was one of the precursors to, to getting quota. They had to have a management. This is plan. this
1: essentially this is essentially tied in with the 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 need for is essentially satisfying the NDF, the non-detrimental findings exactly. of it, the block itself so that so that the tusks could be exported.
3: Exactly. And just and just so that the community could actually get the lease on the land from the government. That is, is okay. one of the uh, prerequisites for the community to be issued a land lease and then subsequently a quota. Is that they had to have an approved management plan, so that was vital. So setting up the trust, mm-hmm. setting up the secretariat, um, mm-hmm. purchasing purchasing a vehicle, and this management mm-hmm. plan. This, you know, this is yeah, you know, like I say, in excess of fifty or sixty thousand uh, dollars. I mean, the management plan alone was fifty thousand plus, and then mm-hmm. there was a vehicle, and then so they've had no income. They've had no income from the time we signed the MOU with them. Till uh, August last year in 2021, they've had zero proper income.
1: So all of that income that you paid went into the trust. Absolutely. And that trust is that financial mechanism is held by community leaders that then determine based on need how to disperse those monies out.
3: 100%, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so Robbie, coming back to that. So, we signed an MOU, which is a memorandum of understanding, and then um, January, end of January, uh, twenty twenty, the chairman phoned, phoned me up and said, "Listen, you need to you need to come here. We need to consult with the community. We need to sign a memorandum of agreement because the indication coming from government is that they are going to allocate us quota. They're going to give us interim user rights while the management plan is being approved." All drawn up and then subsequently approved, but in the interim, they're going to give us user rights and a hunting quota. So mm-hmm. I went, I went up there and uh, I engaged the community. And again, I was blatantly honest and to the point with them, and and transparent. And I said, "Listen, you know, in a in a
2: situation, are you getting me, Robbie? Yeah.
4: Okay. I'm hearing you, yeah. yeah.
2: In a, you know, there are two ways you can do this, and it's up to you." um you can you can put this thing out to this concession
3: out to to tender and it'll be a year by year thing and you might you might get a bit more money you may you may make fifteen or twenty percent more money but and when I, you
1: say that what you're proposing right now just so that again just make sure everyone's yeah. clear here. You're putting out the tender of the concession of the elephant quota on an annual basis for someone to come in, just pick up the quota, hunt it for the year, and maybe not come back next year.
3: Exactly. And, you know, I explained to the community we'd already been uh, together for uh, two years. Um, the one remote village, uh, their borehole packed up, and after two years of running around, I mean, two two weeks of running around and drinking out of, uh, out of uh, natural pan, they they made the call and anyway we sent uh, we sent a pump up there and it got installed and stuff. So that's just a bit about our relationship. Um, you know that vehicle we repaired that vehicle at cost of at least five thousand five thousand pula a month. I was pulling my hair out, but the road is rough and it's the only vehicle there. there's someone sick, the chairman gets in the car or the manager and you know they dash off and they go and p- pick this person up and take them to Shikawi to the nearest to the nearest hospital. But uh, I digress a little bit. So coming back to, to last year, I had a meeting with the community, and I said, listen, there are two ways of doing this, and it, this is entirely up to you. I'm here for the, for the long run because of X, Y, Z, and I put the figures on there, and I said, listen, you've got to develop this concession. It, you've got to develop the reputation. You've got to d- develop the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm in it here for the long run, or you can go to a tender or an auction basis, which is a year-to-year thing, and you change partners every year. And um, the community unanimously said that, no, we're going to give you a chance. We understand where you're, you're coming from, and we appreciate what you've done, what you've done for us, nobody else has done for us in the past. We've now got a properly registered trust. We're looking at a quota. There's a management plan underway, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. after, after those consultations, again, everything was minuted, and I spoke in the local, in the, in, in the local language, which is Sotswana which is like my second language. So everybody understood it. Um, we had translators to, to, um, translate into San or, or the Bushman language. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was a, it was a free for all basically, um, to ask question, how does it work, et cetera, what money we get, what are the benefits, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to do about this? So everything was ironed out and at the end of it, the community said, right, let's go for it. So, I signed a that memorandum of agreement with with the trust and um and I like I said to the community, i said you know there's there's no there's no middle road either we go hard or I go home, and they said, no, we go hard so so from january January alone um to the time they got issued the quota, we spent three hundred thousand pula and this is, you know, logistics for the trust. And they've been to Gaborone. They've been to Gaborone, um, lawyers, et cetera, back and forth. And also keeping their show on the road, their vehicle on the road. And, you know, mm-hmm. the activities that they that they have, um, carrying sick people around and helping with the community where they can, et cetera, et cetera, and meetings and all of that. So alone, And for
1: people listening, it's about a 10 to 1 ratio, right? Pula to yeah, $2, yeah. 8 to $1. Ten to one. So let's just go ten to one for people's edification yeah. in terms of for them ease.
2: doing math off the ease of math yeah. right off the bat. Right. So, so finally, um, I think the director,
3: the director approved the quota in late late July. Um, the director of wildlife, of wildlife. For the,
1: to the government of Botswana.
3: Yeah, the director of wildlife and national parks. Um, he approved the quota. It uh, went through a process. With the Technical Advisory Committee, which is a wing of the um, the uh, Department of uh, Wildlife and National Parks, and um, the the community were availed the quota on the 16th of August. Um, on the 24th, they were told how to dispose of the quota, and they said, "You know, um, we can go ahead." So we signed an agreement on on um the payments due to the community and remember that the, the the hunting season was closing on the 21st of September last year so uh the,
1: this is 2020 yeah, not
3: 2021 though. no th- no no this is this is uh 2021 sorry i'm talking yeah the moa we signed in february of uh uh 20 2021 yeah sorry uh, Robbie, i got a bit mixed up we signed a uh, moa 2021 And then we helped them with their lobby to get the quota, which they finally got at the end of August. And then we did, between ourselves and um, the community, we did our best to get an extension on the the hunting season. Because there were other, there were neighboring concessions, government concession going to the 31st of December. And ours ended Mm. on the 21st of September. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as a company, we decided, let's, let's pay the community in goodwill. And at least then they have money. And they have independence you know they, so they, in
1: 2021 what was the what was the quota issued to the community
3: the quota was for four elephants and and um, and some uh, limited common planes game and, okay and, and we paid let me just work it out here with uh, with uh, what
1: did the government let me ask this question did the government, the director from the, from the government high up was in expectation? Or maybe this is a more general question. Is there an expectation from the state government to what each elephant license costs?
3: Um, yeah. Um, okay. So you have you have two fees you need to pay. You need to pay a government license fee. Then they issue you a your license, and then then you also need to pay the community for the entire hunting quota, whether you utilize it or not. Whether you hunt the zebra or not, or the impala or the elephant, you you buy it in a block, and that's that. The marketing and everything else is up to you. So so in September, in September we paid uh, just over almost 1.1 $1. 1 million. So what is that? That's probably close to 110 thousand dollars, and that includes 14% VAT that also goes to the government. The
1: 110 thousand US. Included the fourteen percent VAT, or you have to add fourteen percent VAT on top. No, no, that of it.
3: that included the the fourteen percent VAT, and I think. We, okay, so that let's just. Well, that's we can, for 4 that, elephant.
1: Okay, so for four elephant, one hundred and ten thousand. That is the 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 base fee, essentially, yeah. right? That is for you to buy the quota. Um, now. Then, then, here's then,
3: the, then, you have before you. You're allowed to actually hunt it. You've got to go to the the offices of the DWMP And purchase a a controlled hunting area permit and you've actually got to purchase the physical elephant license, which lasts How much is each elephant license? Last year was approximately two thousand dollars and and but twenty
1: thousand pula. Yeah. So and then
3: this year they've they've uh, implemented a new pricing which is seven thousand dollars. Approximately seven thousand, seventy thousand pula an elephant to the license. So you've got you've got that 1.1 um, 1.1 million, plus you know your license fees last year, but we didn't pay those because there was no ways we could get a camp up, get clients in before the 21st of September. And We tried. So you didn't you didn't hunt any nothing, elephants in
1: 2021?
3: Nothing. We didn't hunt anything. But you paid the
1: full quota the, the, yeah. fee. Yeah. To the okay. And then let me ask this question. Let me ask this question before on, I forget on, this,
3: Robbie. And then at the same time, you know, the trust set is all very well and good. We're happy with the bucks. but if you don't go and employ people in the village now, we are all going to be sacked. So, mm. so, I went and I we we employed ten people from each village,
2: as thirty people, and we went out there for two months to to cut roads by hand. So that's okay. an extra extra expense.
1: Okay, so let me ask this question. This is where things get um, either murky or clearer. Mm-hmm. That the the government, the the licenses that you pay for the elephants, the, the two thousand dollars in twenty twenty one, the seven thousand dollars in twenty twenty two. Yeah. That money does not go to the community. No, that no, goes that straight goes to the to government. Government coffers. Yeah. Okay, the fourteen percent VAT. That goes to the government or that goes to the community?
3: That goes to the government.
1: Okay, here's the biggest question. The 110000 quota fee. Yeah. The fee that you pay for the license of NG13. Yeah. Does that money go to the government or does it go to the community trust?
3: No, that goes directly to the community trust account.
1: And so it's up to the community. So let me say this. Is it a fair statement? At a baseline level, the com- who determines the quota fee? The community in negotiation with you, or the community decides what it's going to be.
3: So, it, it's a it's a, a negotiation with with the community. It's ultimately up to them, but um, there is a um, a reserve price in place. But it's not it's not rigid. Um, if okay. you if you go to a government auction, they put a reserve price at an auction. Okay. Um, then that stays. I mean, if there's a, a, a decision-maker there and they can't get it, then might, might be able to drop it, but that's it. But with a community, um, that that is a guideline. And as far as I know, mm-hmm. nobody's gone sort of under that.
1: Mm-hmm. Leon, how much of the elephant quota in Botswana, because Botswana in 21, I think it was like 289, right? Was that, that, the number of elephants on quota. Cor- correct. This year is 400 elephants. How many of those elephants are for, are under government auction versus what you're undertaking, which is community community quota, essentially?
3: Ooh, off the top of my head, um, let me think, CT1.
1: 50%?
3: Yeah, I would say it's it's close to, I'd say it's close to 50% because you've got a community like Mababi that's, that's massive and has been given 20, you know, 20 elephant on quota. So I would say
1: 50-50. And when someone purchases a government auctioned, Tag through the system. They have that 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 tag is obviously designated a specific area, right?
2: Correct. And specific time. I think it's from April to thirty first of December. Okay, for that okay. calendar year. So really, at the end of the day, this idea. Because I think a lot of people.
1: The reason I harped so much on the trust in this, yeah. the government and and discussing that, because I think a lot of people and maybe even I had a misperceived idea. Of how the money flows in Botswana in that I expected, honestly, I did expect a quota fee to be paid to the government and then the government figure out some sort of financial mechanism to move it downstream to get to the community and then the community disperse it. And I can understand thinking that way, the levels of corruption that that money would have to flow through yeah. Would almost result in zero money hitting the ground.
2: Yeah.
3: So so Robbie, while while you're there, um, I'll explain to you how it's done. Okay, so you've got the community where the where the private partner um, pays a community directly, and then you have the, the the government auctions. Now the money raised from those elephants go into a specific fund. It's called the conservation um, conservation trust fund or the CTF. And and that fund there is is available or for the purpose of any rural community development, any anti-poaching, any research, et cetera, et cetera. It is it is a bit of a process to uh, apply for it. It's a bit of a technical um a bit of a technical application, but that money raised by those elephant auctions does actually go into a separate trust fund. It doesn't just go into the big government coffer. Mm-hmm. And that's where mm-hmm. I think I think that um, maybe US Fish and Wildlife or you know the outside world would like a bit more you know transparency et cetera et cetera. But it um, it's got quite a quite a big mandate that that uh, Trust front, from what I understand.
1: And so the community trust, the one that, that essentially in your area mm-hmm. NG thirteen, that quota num- that 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 quota cost yeah as you say goes into a trust and there is a chairman of that trust correct um, there is a secretariat of that trust and the community and I, I assume it runs two different ways. number one, the trust itself could say, we want to invest X, y, z, and they have you know Kotlas that discuss that and say this exactly. is what we're going to do is everyone in agreement or the villagers themselves come like you said before and say we need a tractor. Everyone yeah. has a, a, a discussion, yeah. and a tractor is given, exactly. or paid for, or whatnot. It,
3: yeah, exactly, exactly. And and they work with another. So you've got you you've got you've got the traditional leaderships in a village, and then you have what they call a the village uh, development council, and and they are to do more with the development of um, of the community, dealing with needs and challenges of that community. And these two bodies actually work together. The VDC. Or i mean the trust engages the community directly, but the v d c also engages the trust and say, listen, we need a borehole here or we need to do this here or stick a fence up here et cetera et cetera so it's it's very much um i i don't know how to put it uh, regulate but the, there is there is a there is a process to it
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. leon it seems like just on the number that you gave me in 2021, not including the quota for 2022. Yeah. A hundred thousand US dollars, it, it may not seem a lot to someone, okay? But a hundred thousand US dollars in a place like NG thirteen that has two thousand people maximum to take care of is a phenomenal amount of money.
3: Robbie, it is a lot of money. If I mean there are people on that board that do not have
2: $1, which is 10 pula, to buy airtime. There are people that are walking around. There was an old lady who were doing a needs assessment, and there was an old widower. She, they asked her, how often do you eat meat? And she said, once, maybe twice every three months. People Jeez. do not understand the level you know, the level of desperation, the level of poverty,
3: you know, I mean, you've heard these stories, but it's probably a good thing to put out there. The, the women and kids, the men are away in towns and cities trying to scuffle for a buck. The women and kids tend the livestock, and they tend their crops. And I don't know if you've seen our documentary,
2: the um, Voices from the Front Line," um, mm-hmm. that was produced, but the elephants demolish everything.
3: If the, if, those, if those mothers and grandmothers and grandkids do not sleep in those fields at night, with fires, with drums going, um, you know, their, their food for a portion of the year is gone, their food source, which they can either sell or, you know, they eat. And, and this is something that I think is taken for granted, you know, in an urban environment where if we're hungry. You know, you go to a restaurant or you go to a supermarket. You buy milk, what, what, what? But out there, there's nothing. There's no shops. You've got cattle. You've got cattle to milk. You've got chickens for he- eggs. Um, you've got goats to milk and slaughter. And you've got what you grow for the year, you know, which is um, sorghum or maize, um, uh, watermelons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I mean, two or three bulls can come into a, a one-acre, two-acre field at night and decimate it, and then that's it. Uh-huh. You know, and 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 this is again bringing me to an important point. Um, we we for us wildlife and elephant have a, like an intrinsic an intrinsic value. Out there, the perspective is completely different. For them, elephant and wildlife are competition, and they are vermin. They have they have absolutely. No value. And I think, you know, this is an important perception. And, you know, when when aunties come at me and stuff like that, and people say this and that, and I say, you know, I always bring up the challenge. I say, why don't you, why don't you take your family, uproot your family from New York or Cape Town, wherever it may be, and go and live in the village with nothing. The clothes on your back, and we'll give you a donkey and five cows and et cetera, et cetera. And and that's it. And maybe an axe or something like that. And you've got to build a house, and you've got to live there for six months, and then we'll take that family and we'll put them in your house with your credit card and everything like that. And to date, no one has taken me up on the challenge. Um, it's 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 a thing of perspective, and a lot of I think that is lacking. And until someone has actually experienced the le- the level, you know, of desperation, or you know how difficult it is to live out there. Do they actually understand or see a different viewpoint?
4: Mm -hmm.
3: So you know, I think I think that you know that that documentary did shed some light on that. But that's something that I'm faced with every day. You know, people are coming to me; they want to borrow money for this, they have this problem, and lots of people. And they go to the trust and stuff like that. And
2: you know, so
1: why does the trust not? Again, I, I. I can appreciate that people are looking, you know, they need some, they need help, yeah. but the trust has a lot of, you would think the trust has a lot of money you No. Know, to be able to help.
3: Yeah. You know, the, the trust does. And, um, you need to bear in mind that it, it is a, it is a new trust. It is a new trust. And, you know, th- this is one of the things that we need to figure out, um, not just us, but on a, on a, you know, on a bigger scale, how, how do, how do you get those funds to filter down all the way down to the most, you know, to the most, to the most needy? And, um, that, that is, that is actually one of the, one of the challenges, um, of the, of CB, CBNRM. The, the money is there, but how is it dispersed? You know, and how mm-hmm. are decisions made on how to
2: spend the money? Because if you just start handing out money too, you're not going to have any money, but mm-hmm. you know, um. the the big the big thing that the trust has to do in combination
3: you know with the community is to look at you know people's people's livelihoods health fresh water right. and the actual right. support their livelihoods and you know that's one of the projects that we put forward to the community um towards the end of the season we want to pilot some of this in the cluster farming and some of the NGOs are already doing it so we're going to bring them them in and help sp- uh, sponsor and do a couple of pilot projects in these villages and where they they collecting a couple of fields, say ten fields, um, and say each field is two acres or three acres, collecting them and putting an electric fence around them with flashing lights. You know, it's not Mm -hmm. it's not hundred percent effective, but it's about eighty to ninety percent effective. Instead of having people spread out all over the countryside, um, you know, bring them all in one area. Exactly, cluster them in, in in one area because, you know, that's their biggest challenge before you know I would say ten years ago um before elephant became such a major a major problem um you know they they carried on happily they had good crops and their livestock et cetera et cetera and um you know so so that's one of the major challenges to to conservation and particularly places like n g thirteen and i want to touch on the issue you know of of land use um like I said, if it was Viable for a, a non-consumptive photographic type of um, business, somebody would already be doing it. It's been
1: why is it not, so? Why is it not viable? Be-
3: Leon? I think it, that's a big question. You're... Someone
1: says, "Well, why is an ecotourism person not in there?"
3: Um, it's because it's it's a marginal area. And When you say a marginal area, the game density does not satisfy. Does not satisfy a a, um, a photographic camp. You know, if you go into the Okavango Delta, for instance, which is prime, you go in there for three nights, you're going to see elephant, buffalo, lion, leopard, guaranteed, and probably wild dog, and, you know, all the other game. And that's what people want to see. If you go into NG13, which is thick mapani, thick shrub mapani and terminalia, and it's not as pretty as the Okavango. I mean, that is one of the most beautiful places on earth. As far as I'm concerned, um, it, it's not very aesthetically pleasing and it doesn't have the game densities, you know, to satisfy the, the clientele because they'll go from camp to camps, two nights here, three nights there, et cetera, et cetera. If you come to NG thirteen, if you want to see a lion, you're gonna to have to get off the vehicle and track the thing. And probably for days <laughs> until you catch up with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and the same thing with leopard, it's it's just it's just the it's just the environment and the carrying capacity. Right now. It's a, it, there's a lot of water, so there is there is a good number of game. But that water, that's backcountry. That water dries up, and then they, in June, July, all that wildlife, most of it, migrates back to your main water sources, which is the Kwando in the east, and and the Okavango in the south. And that's where the conflict comes from because that's where the people are populated in the south, with the elephant, in particular, you know. So so one of I I'm just talking as it comes to mind. You know, one of the ideas. Is to create permanent waterholes in Ng13, top of Ng11, to you know, to reduce the, the the numbers of elephant actually going down to the river and and reducing the conflict a bit. Whether it's practical or long term or sustainable solution will you know will have to be looked at. But um, but getting back to the area, it is if you go in there August September. You know all the leaves have fallen off the trees and stuff it it's not it's not pretty I mean I love it
2: mm-hmm. um,
3: but mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. for most people, their expectation is the Chobe, the Chobe riverfront or the Okavango De- Delta or the Kalahari where they can see you know they can see their past it's so flat and open where right, where you right, right. you don't have the game numbers and you don't have the visibility and the, you know so-called aesthetic beauty of the place
4: mm-hmm.
3: So so, th- so the only commercial commercially viable thing is is controlled hunting, where the community mm-hmm. so the other option is is to open it up to 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 rural farmers and you know they go in there with their cattle and um they poison all the predators, um and you know, cut down trees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is we we're trying to preserve habitat, not only for elephant, but for wildlife. And the way to do it is to is to create value to the people that own the land. And that's the communities. And that's the big thing about hunting.
1: Yeah. So let me ask this. I've I've purposely ignored, avoided the elephant hunt itself because I wanted to set all of that context. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about some details of the hunt itself and the elephant itself very quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Go ahead.
3: Um okay yeah so no, i don't want to
1: spend much time on the elephant hunt okay. itself but i do want to put some some details out there some truths out yeah. there about the hunt itself um question number 1 you shot the elephant from your vehicle right
2: no definitely not definitely
3: not um the <laughs> we tracked that elephant on foot like
2: if firstly oh. firstly it's illegal and secondly you know firstly it's unethical and secondly it's illegal Totally illegal.
1: Proxy. yep. So a couple of days of tracking, or you found him in in the morning and late evening, um, put up with him.
3: Yeah. So the the hunting season started on the fifth, and um, we took a drive around on 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 that afternoon. I think it was a I think it was a Tuesday. We went out on, um, and then we went out early early on Wednesday morning to the to the north towards uh, towards uh, Mm -hmm. Namibia. Just to give you some direction, and um, you know, at twelve o'clock we picked up a, a track of an old elephant bull, and uh, we followed that until you know it was almost dark, and we we never we never caught up with the bull. Then um, you know, early the next morning, uh, the idea was to go back and actually try and see if we could find that bull. And remember, it's it's all thick. In your visibility is twenty meters, ten meters. Forty meters, at, sure. at, at at um you know at the most, and uh, yeah, the next morning we we drove out a camp, and instead of going back to the north, I thought let me go down to the south. I have seen some sign here, you know. When I say sign, movement of of elephant bulls in particular, just their tracks. And uh, we went down the road maybe uh, a kilometer, and we saw this fresh track crossing the road from east to west, and uh, got out. We had a look at it uh the trackers and I decided this we you never know what the ivory is like um but this is an this is an old bull. You know, telling from from his tracks you can see he's got um a very gnarly track, um a worn a worn rear track and just a, a chunky track. It's difficult to explain, you know, over the mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: over the wire like this. But anyway we decided we decided to to track him. Um, we set off after him and I would say maybe about a a kilometer, um no, kilometer and a half. We just we spotted we spotted um the top of him and uh we got closer we still couldn't see the ivory and when we saw the ivory we just it was just surreal. It was it was unbelievable. And um anyway, one of the most hardest and most exciting stalks of my life, so we don't mess it up. The wind was a little bit fickle. And um, we got the hunter up to about, um, I think about 40 yards and he made a perfect uh, brain shot. Um, The elephant didn't even know what, what hit him, you know, and, um, and of course, everybody was very happy and stuff like that. And um, we walked up to this elephant and it is just, it was an unbelievable experience and such a, such a privilege. Um, We looked at that elephant and we were just in absolute, in absolute awe of the elephant. Um you know, and again the the privilege to to have hunted an elephant like this, and you know we started looking at the elephant he he had a a big injury on his right hand side through the ribs there's a big I'll send you a photograph there's a big cyst there, and um where he'd been he'd been um hit by another bull um and then there was more more recent scarring not recent but uh fested scar. On his, I think it was his left tusk, and um, you know his body. His body was starting to deteriorate. We saw the dung. The dung wasn't. Um, you can see the leaves and the grass and the bark isn't being chewed properly, and that's an indication of age because the molars are worn down. And you know, mm-hmm. it, you know once we once we um, skin the elephant and stuff, and one of the prerequisites is that you surrender the the jaw, um, the lower jaw for aging. And he was on his last set of molars, and the one molar was uh, particularly chipped and, and very well worn, so it indicates that he's over you know 40, 45 years old. Um, and just his body condition wasn't great. Um, his body condition wasn't great, and uh, just you know uh, just a, a grand, a grand, grand old animal. And um, later on, when we were skinning, skinning the elephant, we found an AK-47 bulletin
2: now whether that was mm-hmm.
3: you know from crop protection or pro, pre, uh, approaches previously and then you know
2: you look at a bull like this and you think he's got he's got four four options one of them is natural death through
3: starvation because he can't process the food well or he could be killed by another elephant i found that twice in my career in botswana other elephants being bulls being killed by other elephants um he could have been shot by a poacher um he could have been killed or mortally wounded by a farmer protecting his crops you know
2: or we could have hunted him and you know if i if i look you know from an objective without emotion you know
3: he went he went painlessly and he contributed immensely to to a community and to a project um you know, his death wasn't in vain. And I don't want to sound cliched or whatever the English is for it, but but that that's the reality. You know, he could have mm-hmm. easily been poached or killed, um, protecting crops, killed by another bull, and he's instead he's brought great value. And the other thing I was thinking about, I know I'm rambling, but he's given us this opportunity, you know, to bring this story out. It's not about him mm-hmm. so much as it is about the plight of the rural communities. And conservation, you know, and, mm, yeah. and protection of these uh, of these um, large wilderness areas and, and these habitats. It, it's given us that opportunity to have this conversation. Because, again, I was
2: thinking, you know, what if he, he was a grand old bull, but he had half the ivory? Nobody cares.
1: Let me ask this question. Yeah. Let's, let's assume that was the case. He had half the ivory. Yeah. Decent ivory still. Maybe a 50-pounder. Yeah you know 60 pound Yeah. And he was the same age. Yeah. Put yourself back in that situation. Would your client have said yes, I'll take the bull?
3: Yes, he would have.
2: He would have because it's an it's an old animal, it is hunted properly in a in a in a wilderness area. Um you know again,
3: when it when it comes to 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 selecting animals to hunt, we're looking, you know, we're looking for old animals. The thing The thing has changed, you know, I would say in the last decade, decade and a half, that, you know, us as PHs and safari operators and the clientele has changed. You know, maybe back 20 years ago and stuff like that, the focus is on, you know, bigger, better, trophy, blah, blah, blah. But the trophy now is the age and the privilege and experience and the adventure. Of a of a hunt or a safari, that is the actual trophy. That's what you you take home with you and you remember. You know, I I I give the example to you know visiting hunters and stuff like that. You can step out the car and shoot a massive buffalo, your first buffalo ever. You'll think buffalo hunting is easy, but you can you can hunt an old rat of a, an ancient old bull that uh, you know has been evading lions and hyenas and wild dogs and hunters and whoever. Um, his whole life for 15 years and he'll give you a hell of a run around and you may finally get him. We'll give you more, you know, I don't know if satisfaction is, is the right, the right word, um, mm. more appreciation for a Buffalo mm. and the hunt. It's about the hunt, you know, and this is what I explained to new hunters. I said, you know, record book trophies and stuff is all very well, but no one gives a damn, you know, no, you don't get some award that, there's a million dollars or there's two million dollars, oh, you're the greatest hunter. it's your luck that that's mm-hmm. That's the thing about hunting. a lot to do with luck more than uh, more than a lot of people will
2: admit. you know so for us, when it comes back to this elephant, that he was carrying that kind of ivory was luck. and mm-hmm. if you have to think about everything that had to happen for us to meet up with that one
3: elephant. In that vastness, I think there was a survey done, a dry season survey of NG11, NG13, um, 2019, 2020, somewhere there. The the population was over twenty nine thousand elephant. Um, you know that that
1: needle in the haystack.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, this is you know that's why I say it's such a privilege and an honor to. To get something like that it's got uh, you know yes i've got 20 years of experience and i'm passionate and i love hunting and i love being out there and we work hard and i got a good team blah blah blah, blah, blah. but at the end of the day that's that's what it boils down to
1: mm-hmm. in your experience and maybe this this may be an unfair question yeah. but i want to ask it because i think some of the comments that i've been seeing around this hunt tie into this in your experience what do you think the the home range of an elephant like this was and your experience in terms of wet season, dry season, you said there's been a lot of good mm. rains up in this, in
2: yeah. this area. Okay. So, you know, in my experience and, and the research, you know, that I've read, um,
3: you know, old bulls, old bulls, really old bulls like this. And this is what I want to come back to his previous injuries, if I may quickly. Mm-hmm. That is not a bull. That would take on a, a bull that's 35, 30, and 35 years old, who's twice his size in in body weight, in mass. So as mm. far as breeding and the genetics, because I think that's another underlying thing that people right. don't quite understand, that a bull like that has long since passed his genetics on. He might get, you know, lucky here and there on the edge of a on the edge of a herd, but he's not a prime breeding bull anymore. He's all by himself. Um, he's been hammered by younger bulls and he will not take them. Were on there him. any
1: bulls around
3: him? No, no, when was you, when absolutely, you... absolutely alone by himself, okay. a single bull. And what's funny is within 200 yards of that, the the,
2: the afternoon we took a drive around, um, we, yeah, I'm trying to think. yeah, it, Yeah, it was, yeah, I would say maybe within 500 yards, we spotted uh, a bull that had no tail, had a broken
3: ear that had flapped forward, was completely emaciated, sunk a sunken skull completely, but didn't have not even nothing, no ivory showing, absolutely nothing. Um, and so it's it's quite interesting because in that area, there was that bull and this bull we subsequently hunted, and there wasn't much other activity. You know, there wasn't, weren't yeah. cows around, um, groups of bulls, nothing, nothing. So so coming back to the home range, I think a, a bull like that, um, you know, just wants to live out, you know, live out his life. Um, home range will be relatively small. You know, there's been comments about, no, it's a photographic icon. I haven't, still haven't seen a photograph of him live. And, you know, the first closest photographic camp is 40Ks in a, in a straight line, you know, all the way yeah. to the east in the Kwondo in NG-14, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you wonder to yourself, if, if it was so safe and peaceful and harmonious there, why is he 40 kilometers from there?
1: But 40 Ks for an elephant is nothing. No, right? no. That in guy it, could travel yeah. 40 Ks in two days. It,
3: it, well, this is it. Well, this is it, you know, he can, he can. But, you know, where there's a lot of water, a lot of food, you've got a lot of, <laughs> you've got a lot of elephant cows and you have bulls because of you, you've got a, lo- a lot of elephant cows. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the grazing is richer, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I would I would suspect that once the water, the 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 feed quality drops off in the dry season and you know the 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 water holes dry up, then he would move to, you know, either the Okavango or the Kwanda for feed and water. And and this is how this is how it works. And this is why these places, these marginal places are so important, is because at this time of the year when there is a lot of water, et cetera that they feed the wildlife and then that's how the flow works and the feed the feed quality goes down the water dries up they move to the the riverine and the permanent water they can't live there year mm-hmm. round because the feed quality is not is not uh, great um
4: mm-hmm.
3: the feed quality is not great and there's a there's a lot of competition on on the waterline mhm mhm or permanent water
1: well man i i I I don't have any other questions. I, um, I've exhausted my list of questions. It's been, um, obviously fascinating, right? We wanted to, we wanted to tell the truth about the incident, not the incident. That makes it sound like something that was bad. The, 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 the hunt and the elephant that was taken on that hunt. Um, and I wanted to talk to you specifically because you were the professional hunter on that on that hunt I, and I wanted to provide an opportunity for people to listen to you because any sort of quote that you give to a press an article whatever is written about this is not going to do justice because you you, you can't fit all the information that is tied to not only this elephant but as you say the broader implications the broader situation which are absolutely right is the It's beyond elephant management, but rather the sustainable, consumptive use of a resource for these very, very, very rural communities and the ability for them to utilise their wildlife in a way that raises their livelihoods.
3: A hundred percent, Robbie. You know, and and this is this is this is the greatest challenge we have. It's not it's not about so much about anti-poaching, and you know I've seen it in in. Wherever there is poaching, um, especially from rural communities, they they do it out of out of desperation or as a means of survival. Yes, there are the commercial ivory hunters and stuff like that. I don't I don't deny that. But you get what we call subsistence poaching, and that's that's survival. Firstly, it's mm-hmm. something that um, you know that that's how rural communities survived before game laws and conservation and all came into it. Um, But the the big thing is survival. I mean, if you've got your family and your crops have been wiped out or a lion has come in and uh, a group of lions have come in and they've wiped out your cattle, and you've got one cow left, you've got to feed your family. You know, and if there isn't, if you're far from government or you don't have uh, wealthy relatives or willing friends and stuff like that, your family is going to starve that that mm-hmm. that is that is the bottom line and you know and that's why um the biggest the, the biggest threat to all of this is the value that the that the rural people place in wildlife and of course you know the habitat we've got to do our best to conserve the habitat you know in conjunction with the rural people and one of the i mean one of the most effective things is i I think it's human nature if you you look after something that has value to you you don't have time to look after something that doesn't have value to you. So, right. you know, hunting in these marginal areas places a value on that land and on that wildlife to those rural people. And this is a concept that people from the
2: outside do not understand and, and appreciate or don't want to Hmm. Because, well because of their perspective.
1: Well said. I don't think you could end a podcast any better, Leon.
2: Well, Robbie,
1: Anything else that you think we've missed?
3: Yes, see, I, think, I think we've freshed it. But I mean, I would love to come back and, and talk more about it or the, more the development. No, we'll
1: have you back on, man, yeah. for sure. We need to, I think, again, this is where, I, I'll tell you this, the number one thing that we get hammered on all the time is the money. Yeah. Where does the money go? Exactly, and if we can, if we can show mechanisms like you've just articulated, yeah. here is the money. Now, people are always going to want more, right?
2: Absolutely, everyone's Human going to major. want more.
1: Everyone's going to want. I want to see the bank account. Yeah. I want to see the expense reports. Yeah. I want to see x x x x x. And sometimes it's not possible.
3: Yeah, Robbie, uh, I give you an example, sorry, I don't want to cut you short, but. If you look at no, no you the, can. The, I'm
1: not the. I'm not. I'm just well, the host here. You know, you're, you're what, leading this charge.
3: What, what, what we've paid, you know, including VAT for five elephant that we are hunting this year, I think it's two point six
2: one two eight eight zero, right? Divided by five,
3: it's five hundred. If you include last year's quota and this year's
2: quota, it's five hundred
3: and twenty-two thousand pula, which is over fifty thousand dollars an elephant. That's gone straight to and the that's straight to the community, community yeah. trust. Yeah, straight to the community trust. Um, you know, that's before the seven thousand dollars license fee. I mean, this is before you put up a camp, you've put a road in there. We've got a grader going in there. I've got a crew of over twenty-five guys opening roads because it is completely, completely undeveloped.
1: Well, look, we'll have you back okay. because I think that there's a lot more to be. A lot more to be discussed around the finances and what does the future look like. And um, you know, as you are engaging your community on the ground and they're getting tractors and all that kind of stuff, I think one way that you can help tell your story is take pictures, take videos of the community and what they're getting. Because a lot of people, you can say everything until you're blue in the face. Leon. Yeah. But until people see it, yeah. Nobody's going to believe this, right? Nobody's going to believe you. It's not going to believe me. They're not going to believe anything we say until you say, "Here's the proof."
3: You know, and and there's an open invite for people that want to actually come and see this, and see how it all works. I mean, the the door is
2: wide open. It's wide Mm -hmm. open. You know, we've got we've got nothing to hide, and in fact, the the more people on board, the 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 better.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: So, Robbie, thank you very very much for giving us this opportunity. It's, it's, it's been a, it's been good talking, you know, openly like this. And again, um, I, I believe this pool has given us this opportunity.
1: Yeah. And look, and I can, you're getting emotional again. You got emotional in the beginning of the podcast and I want people to understand because I can see you. Nobody can see you. Yeah. This is emotional. This means a lot to you. This means a lot to the community and it means a lot to the people that are investing in the people of Botswana. Yeah. And I think people forget that. They, they get all wrapped up in the emotional aspect of this big bull and it died. And yes, it is sad. And you yeah. are sad for it. Yeah. And you're, but you're also very grateful for the privilege and the people that get the meat. We haven't even talked about the meat. Yeah, we, the we, haven't even, we,
3: meat we, we haven't even got to the there. people. Robbie, the, in the end, there were 350 people apparently. I've sent you some photographs on WhatsApp, but apparently there were 350 people there. They have never received elephant meat. Mm-hmm. And and something that we take for granted, protein, meat protein, they've never, they've never, they've never seen it in, in a village. They've never mm-hmm. seen it in a village. You know, so, so nothing goes, to, nothing goes to waste. Um, and, you know, like I said, that, that, that old bull's life, I'm going to make sure it doesn't go to waste. And we're going to mm-hmm. utilize it on the media platforms and the social, social media platforms in the village as far as the money is concerned. You know, he's been utilized from start to finish. And it's mm-hmm. not going, you know, in vain.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed.
2: You're the man, Leon. Thank you. Robbie, thank you very much. Great talking to you and have a good day.
1: So I'm going to end this podcast a little differently than I normally do. You just heard from the professional hunter and you may be, you may be glad with the explanation. You may be frustrated with the explanation. You may be asking, where's the other side of the coin? Where's the other opinion? Well, on Thursday, we will be dropping a podcast that is completely opposite to this one. That is what Blood Origins seeks to do. We want to provide a dialogue. We want to provide a platform by which we can have these controversial discussions and conversations. So on Thursday, we have a safari operator, photographer, out of South Africa that was the first individual to call Blood Origin specifically out and sort of point the finger at us. And so I wanted to have a conversation with that individual. And that conversation will drop on Thursday. And it's a really phenomenal conversation because number one, this is a super emotional topic. And emotional topics typically bring out the worst in people. But when things calm down, and people are able to have a one-on-one dialogue and a rational discussion in which both sides want to listen, then great conversations happen. And great conversations lead to
4: great ideas, great thoughts,
1: and the opportunity to be better. Because at the end of the day, we all want to be better. We want to be better stewards of the environment. We want to be better wildlife conservationists. So I hope you'll tune in on Thursday for a very, very good conversation that's 180 degrees different from what you just listened to